from somewhere else and that the preacher is actually somebody else other than Solomon, which modern-day scholarship is just horrible. I mean, it's, there, there is no chance. The ancients, the old Jewish rabbis, etc., and the ancients, they all accepted that uh, the author was Solomon. Um, so for our purposes, there is no reason other than he changes tenses of verbs and pronouns because he's talking about himself in the third person. Which talking about be yourself in the third person in our modern day world is an indication that you're probably nuts. Um, but in a, when you're writing a book, that's a whole different scenario. It doesn't indicate that there's actually somebody else that you're talking about. You could be talking about yourself and the like. And so I, I reject that completely. This is Solomon. This is Solomon's work. Um, it was his life's work. Solomon writes Ecclesiastes at, at the end of his life. He spent the early years of his life figuring things out, trying to rule Israel. Um, and he got sidetracked. We know the story of Solomon. He ended up with all those wives and then all those concubines. And he was a little busy <laughs> and chasing after pleasure. And he got into worshiping all these other deities, which includes a lot of hedonism, pleasures, uh, whether they were sexual, whether they were food festivals, and all, just all sorts of stuff. And he comes to the end of his life, and he's looking back. And this is kind of his assessment as we look at this. I remember that Solomon asked God to help him rule, and God offered him whatever he asked for. And Solomon's quest was for what? Wisdom. Wisdom. Give me wisdom. And so Solomon was granted the wisdom from God that made him wiser than anybody else, which made him exceedingly wealthy, which made the nation of Israel exceedingly prosperous. But it didn't make him exceedingly godly, unlike his father. He did not, I, you know, everybody's like, oh yeah, you should always ask for wisdom. I think that Solomon would have been better served had he asked for godliness, that he would be like God, that he would chase after and have a strong relationship with God rather than wisdom. And he even, he's going to tell us about that here, because even wisdom is folly if it isn't centered around God. Um... And so we come to the end of Solomon's life, and he's looking back, and he's looking at all this, and he's like, what's it all worth? What's, all the, what's the point? What's the reason? And all of that. So that's where we're at. We're going to look at this. It's interesting that they, it's lumped next to Job, because Job shows us the same thing, doesn't it? Ecclesiastes is like the dissertation. This is the study. You know, somebody sit down and studied life. Job is the example. Here's what life looks like, and here's the thing. The meanings are the same. It's all about God, not about anything else. And we're going to see that as we study this. Any comment before I go? All right, so let's get into it. We'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 12 to 15. Somebody go ahead and read this for us. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. <coughs> Solomon, see, he doesn't say Solomon. He says, I, the preacher or teacher, your version may say, being king over Israel. Well, there was only three kings over all Israel, David, Saul, and Solomon. So this has got to be one of the three of them. 
Anyway, um, it's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. Though it says unhappy, and that's not really what he means. It's a poor English translation. The idea behind the Hebrew word here is that it's um, not fulfilling. It's worthless. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't. It, it just doesn't do it. We're, we've been given this task by God, and the task itself, the the job of we're supposed to keep the garden. The, the world is ours. We're supposed to fill it with children and keep it. That's what he's referring to. This business of those things, it's unhappy. It's unfulfilling. It doesn't do it for us. That's not what it's about. So the, the, it's the work that God gave man to keep us busy doesn't fulfill. There's something missing in it. New American Standards calls it grievous. Yeah, it's grievous. Okay. And the NIV says a heavy burden. Yeah. Well, think about it. If you have a task that's really onus, mm -hmm. you know, like you have to scrub the bathroom. <laughs> there, there's no joy in that. I don't care who you are. There's no joy in cleaning the bathroom. Um, but it's the job you've been given to do, so you do it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's, what he, that's what he's indicating. But this is the job God gave mankind to do. That's not the point of life. Turn my page before I'm supposed to. Part of our problem is we have a limited perspective. Uh, this is the, in our outline of the book, uh, this is the introduction. The search for meaning. And that's what we're talking about. The meaning of life. What is the meaning of life? Mankind has been struggling with this forever. Our problem is, is we have a limited perspective. Amassing knowledge can't ever be completed. That's part of our problem. See, this ties right into what Chris has been talking about. We have a, a knowledge problem. We think that if our science just delves deep enough or looks far enough out, we'll know everything. And every time we think we do, we don't. Um, talk to a scientist, and there's always something that vexes them. <laughs> they can't find the answer to some question. They know that there must be an answer to it, but they can't figure it out. Um, because there's always more to know. The more you study, the more you realize you don't know. Uh, you know, it's, I've spent pretty much my entire adult life studying scripture in order to teach and all that, and I still find more things I don't know. And it's like this book is, you know, 10,000 years old. Nobody, you know, it's been looked at from every possible angle and all that, and people are still finding things and say, wow, I didn't see that. I didn't know about this, that, or the other thing. And it's that way in every field. There's always more to know. There's always, you know, you get, you do your bachelor's degree and it's just really broad. You get a little English, a little history, a little philosophy. You might throw a little math in there and all that. And then you specialize a little bit in your field. And then you realize that, you know what, I don't know enough. So you go and get a master's degree, which, you know, you, you, you slice that really thin. And you say, okay, I'm just going to concentrate on this field. And you study that and you put in your, whatever it is, 68 hours or whatever. And you get your master's degree and then you work in it and you're like, you know what, I still don't know enough. And you go back and you do the unthinkable and you get a PhD. <laughs> and you spend the rest of your life trying to sort that out and to write your 500-page thesis on one particular thing about your field, and the only thing you come out with is you realize, I really don't know about that one particular thing. I've studied it, and that's the best I can come up with. Because amassing knowledge, it's not an ends to a means. It's not even really a means to an ends. It's just more knowledge and more knowledge and more knowledge. Seeking wisdom is a miserable task. You want to be wise. The, the, some of the gurus from the Far East 
take their entire lives and sit and do nothing but contemplate the meaning of life or the meaning of an insect or whatever navel-gazing thing they choose to do. But they dedicate their entire life to it that people have to bring them food. They don't even get up from their spot to feed themselves. That's all they do because they are trying to understand. And the problem is, is that when all you have is what you know and you're trying to use your mind, you can't see it. You're looking at yourself trying to understand why do I exist. This coffee cup, if it was sentient, sitting here, could never figure out what its purpose in life was, could it? I could tell it what its purpose in life was, and then it would know, wouldn't it? See, because in and of itself, it, even if it could get a mirror and stick it out here and look at it, it would be, why am I a cylindrical object? Why am I hollow, full of liquid? It wouldn't know why that was. It would take somebody from the outside looking in to tell it. That's the problem with wisdom. Everybody that's seeking wisdom is looking where? Inward. Inward. Right now, our world's mantra is that, you know, do it for yourself. Make it about you. Everything is revolves around. Decide who you are. Well, if I look at myself and decide who I am, well, I can lie to myself. Let's face it. We, we all want to dress ourselves up and make ourselves look as good as we can in our own minds. You stand there and you look in the mirror and go, oh, yeah, I'm good looking. You go to the club and all the girls are like, ew, look at you. Who picked that out for you? Guys, come on. You've all walked in your closet, put something on, and your wife goes, are you wearing that? Yeah, well, you think you look good, man. This is, this is my leisure suit. Come on, all you got to do is look at Steve. Look at Pastor K. I mean, I don't know where he gets some of those suits and ties. Becky loves him. That's all I know. <laughs> but, you know, you walk in there, you put it on, and you're like, oh, yeah. But why? Because somebody else has to tell you. We cannot figure it out for ourselves. We have blinders on when it comes to looking at ourselves. Seeking wisdom is a miserable task because the only place we can go to find wisdom is where? God. It's God. We have to get somebody outside of all the stuff who happens to be the creator, who can tell us what the point is and all that, and wisdom. So if you're not using God as your starting point, it's a miserable task. Thirdly, goals, dreams, and desires all lead to <coughs> futility. There's never enough money. There's never enough stuff. There's never enough fame. There's never enough whatever it is you're seeking. And there are several. Uh, the intellectuals, those who chase after the intellectual dream, this intellectual solution. If I'm just smart enough, I can sort it all out. That's our problem right now, the elitists. They go to these colleges, they sit in their ivory towers, and they work in these think tanks, and they think they can solve the world's problems. The intellectual solution. It says study further. We need more studies. You notice that? Congress is always offering, we need a study of this. There's a new, we, we don't know what, the, we know what the problem is, we need a study on it. And they hire this commission, that commission, this think tank, this scientific group, and, they, and they, then they don't even agree. If there was a solution that worked, they would all come to the same solution, wouldn't they? But they don't. So the intellectual says, I need to study further. And it's an endless study. Then there's the hedonist. The party people, the L.A. crowd, <laughs> they love their parties, uh, they love their, their hoopla and all that. There's never, you know, it's all the sex, drugs, and rock and roll you can get, right? The hedonists think that, well, you know what, when I'm looking at the meaning of life, just live it, enjoy every second of it. And let's face it. Through the 80s, that was a big thing, right? Just do it. Just do it. Whatever it is you want, just do it. Right? Well, the hedonist solution goes just party harder. <laughs> if it's not fun, and, the, and they have. And then, you know, it started off with the, you know, just alcohol. And then it was a little drugs. And then it was harder drugs. And then that's not enough. 
and it just keeps escalating and escalating and you, you have to go farther out to the edge to find excitement because you're bored out of your brain because you have everything you want and all that. And partying harder, eventually you can't party harder. You can't have one more feast. It just doesn't work. It doesn't answer the question of what's the meaning of life. The meaning of life isn't partying. Now there's nothing wrong with partying. There's nothing wrong with education. They're just not the meaning of life. The achiever. We saw this through the 90s. It was the achiever solution. And the achiever says, I just need to work longer. I can climb that ladder. I can get to the top if I work harder. So the 40-hour work week went to 60. And 60 went to 80. And 80 was pushing 90. And people were working themselves to death. They weren't ever seeing their children at home. The whole latchkey kid thing started. I just need to work a little more. If I can just one more weekend and I'll make partner in the law firm. If I can just get one more big client, that'll be it. And it doesn't happen. Or it does. And you realize that, oh, no, I have to keep doing this. And so they work harder. They work longer. And they amass wealth. They amass position. Maybe they own the company, and then they really start working hard. Because you've got you to work hard to keep the company. It doesn't answer the meaning of life, does it? And it all collapses anyway. Well, then there's the materialist solution. And this was also popular through the 90s. It tended to be the spouse that stayed at home. The materialist solution is you just want more. If I could just get that, you know, I, I had the, the new Chevy. And that was nice, but, you know, the guy down the street's got a got the new whatever, Volvo. Ford. Huh? And then, Volvo. yeah, then it was a Volvo. And now it's a BMW. And now it's, you know, whatever it is. Or you have to get, ah, oh, we have to join this country club. This country club will do it for us. And it becomes a matter of chasing after statuses. The materialist solution to the meaning of life is acquire more. It's always more and more and more. And usually it's married to an achiever who is accumulating it. And if they're not married to an achiever and they happen to be married to the intellectual or the hedonist, well, then, they, then you end up with piles of debt. Because they're trying, the, the mentalist is, or the materialist is trying to acquire whatever it is. They sit there and they surf the home shopping network. Oh, I need that. Oh, I need that. Or they're cruising Amazon. Ooh, I didn't know they even made that. That'll do it for me. That'll, that'll make me feel better. That'll get it for me. As a meaning to life materialism, you end up with, with storage sheds full of stuff, sometimes brand new, not even open. You acquired it, and it felt good for that split second that you bought it, that you hit, you hit buy now on that shopping cart, and wow, and then it comes to you like, why in the world did I buy this? Eh, okay, well, whatever. You know, and that's, that's the materialist. Doesn't answer the question. Philosophers. Philosophers sit and ponder the meaning of life all the time. You think they would come up with the answers. And the, the philosopher's solution is think deeper. No matter how deep they go, how deep they think, how much navel gazing, then they, well, I, the problem is, is I need to transcend this reality and then they start in with the LSD and other mind-altering drugs and then frogs from South America and, and things they, they, they put you in altered states so that I can think deeper I can broaden my perspective because we have a limited perspective we need to see more right that'll give us the meaning of life but it doesn't do it they can't find it so you would think that religion would do it. And there are religionists. And their solution also doesn't find the meaning. You will not find the meaning of life in religion. Coming to church won't give you the meaning of life. Do more church. I had a lot of friends whose parents bought into this. And they lived at church. Every time the doors were open, they were there. And so were their kids. And the kids grew up hating church. Because that's all they did. Yes, I just need to be a little more religious. One more committee, one more group activity, one more thing, and then I'll be there. I will have arrived, right? That's not a meaning to life. 
None of these fulfill the meaning to life because we have a limited perspective. With that limited perspective, we only see one tiny little connection. We all wonder, as we're looking at Job, we all wonder why bad things happen to good people. We can't figure that out because we have a limited perspective. We don't know why things happen to us, to others. We can't look at what he was such a great guy. Why did this happen to him or her? Because of our limited perspective, we have no idea what God is doing in a much broader sense. It may not have an effect on something today, tomorrow. It may be even the next generation or two that it affects them. That it will have the effect that God wanted, but he had to do it now in order for the future. We can't see that. We can't see all the interconnections of all the lives of all the people and how they happen. You know, we all make fun of the butterfly effect. Uh, but the reality is, that's how God perceives everything. And so, yes, the wings of a butterfly may start a hurricane. We don't really know. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of one of those philosophical jokes that may be real because we can't see as God sees. He doesn't see everything at one time. He sees everything at, in time. All of it. He sees all of time simultaneously. And thus can see what happened 10,000 years ago and 10,000 years from now and can draw a line through it and say, these are the things that need to happen in order for that to happen. And we're just in the middle of it somewhere and we have no idea. So the meaning of life is found outside of our limited Perspective. All right, comments or questions? I just made a comment. I want to make a comment. Go ahead. Um, I really thank the Lord for my mom and dad who gave me the knowledge of the Lord's love and uh, salvation. Because who knows where I'd be sometimes with that. <laughs> yeah. We, we just don't, I mean, whoever, I mean, so you, if you read. Um, biographies at all, and you start reading some of the old uh, missionaries, and you read their accounts of how they ended up on the mission field. Some of them are, it, are it's just amazing how they ever ended up becoming saved. Uh, just um, Spurgeon was not a uh, man of God. He just ended up in the church and after a few weeks, the pastor there said, I have, another, I have another church that needs a preacher. You're going to study this passage this week, and you're going to go preach there. <laughs> How many people has he affected? You all sitting in here, every one of you have been affected by him because I read him all the time to gain perspective, and I often quote him. So you've been affected by him. His very existence may have been so that one of you would hear me quote him so that it would have an effect in your life. Did you realize that? Mm -hmm. Augustine, one of the great theologians from the ancient world, was a hedonist. And he got saved, and he wrote so many books and was penned that some of the orthodox theology that we have today, particularly on the nature of man, um, that if we didn't have that, if he hadn't come, we wouldn't have those thoughts on it and it may be his whole point of his life we don't understand we don't know but i mean he he lived in like 68 ad or something like that <laughs> so, you know hundreds of years later people are still being affected even if they don't remember who your name is <laughs> it has an effect you have an effect we just have a limited perspective and we can't see the meaning of life all right ecclesiastes chapter 2 verses 18 through 21. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun, because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows, excuse me, and who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool? Yet, excuse me again, yet 
He will have control over all the work into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a man may do his work with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then he must leave it all, leave all he owns to someone who has not worked for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. <coughs> Much of the world needs, needs to learn this one. It's a sad state of affairs. <coughs> you spend the vast majority of your adult life working hard. You get nice things. Nice house, nice cars, nice bank accounts. And everybody wants to save it and save it and save it so that their children will have something. And as Solomon points out, who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? <coughs> That's the problem, isn't it? You can raise your children right and they still be fools. Because <coughs> we don't have any control of the choices they make. Oh, some parents try to control the choices that their children make by making all the choices for them. That doesn't usually work out. <coughs> we have an entire generation that are the trust fund kids, right? We talk about the trust fund kids. Their parents worked and amassed large quantities of stuff, wealth and property and all that, and they left it to this generation so that they would never have to toil so hard. And we look at our world and we complain about those trust fund kids because look what they have done with it. They don't have no value of work, and thus no value for the workers. They have no value to the freedoms that we have. They, all they see is injustices, and they've got the money and resources to do things with it, to fight those things. And we look at them and go, really? You're, you're, why, why are you wasting your life? You see them in their protest. Remember uh, Occupy Wall Street? Yeah. <laughs> all those uh, young people with their trust funds, day and night, parked in front of Wall Street, protesting Wall Street, while their trust funds are being refilled with it, and they're wearing their $400 Nike sneakers and $200 guest jeans, while they're walking around with a you know, $1,000 iPhone, protesting the very organizations that gave them that wealth. Why? Because they're fools, Solomon says. <laughs> Their wealth was left to them. They never worked for it. They had it. And this is what they're doing with it. Keep flipping too soon. So we've moved on to part two of the outline. This is the search is being described. The search for the meaning of life is described here. And the first part he's going to talk about is the inheritance blown. Is the inheritance you leave going to be blown or used for the right purposes? The problem is, is wealth can be lost, stolen, or destroyed. I don't care what kind of wealth you have. You can buy it and put it all in gold and leave gold bullion for your children. It can be stolen. It most certainly can be destroyed. Um, we're told by Jesus that our wealth should be put where? Heaven. In heaven. Not in our children. Our wealth should be put in heaven where neither moth nor rust nor, and he went so far as to even give illustration. Guy builds barns, fills them, and still has more. Tears them down, builds new barns, and what happens? He dies. He dies. <laughs> he dies. Wealth can be lost, stolen, and destroyed. It's just not that valuable here. Unfortunately, church, as the church, we have bought into the world's materialistic lie 
And we are consumed with the idea of having wealth. Not that being wealthy is wrong, but we become we have to we have to say I I, I like to add, you know, people are trying to how do I save for my children? It's a big industry. It's putting it away, making sure that there's something for them. The problem is, is that as parents, you tend to work yourself to death to save up something for them. And when do you get to enjoy it? It may not even be there. People have been putting it into the stock markets and things like 2008 happened where the stock markets implode because the housing market popped. Or the 90s, where, where everything reset and everybody was out of jobs. Or even, you know, the Great Depression. It's gone in an instant. And, uh, yes. There's another aspect to that, too. All that time you spent working and amassing that, you weren't putting it into your children. Yeah. Right. Which really leaves them in a bad spot. Well, because we view wealth as being the accumulation of stuff and money. How much more valuable in terms of wealth, quote unquote, would be to be at your kids' games? To have been there to play ball in the backyard rather than, well, I'm going to pull a double shift. How much more valuable would it have been there to say, you know what, we can't go to Europe for a vacation, but we can take the weekend and run down to the shore and let them splash in the waves and, and throw jellyfish or... Uh, not jellyfish, starfish. <laughs> Collect starfish on the beach and just throw them in there. It's not a great, let's face it, Jersey's beaches are not my favorite place to go. But the wealth to a child. I mean, you ever try, it's funny, in Korea, they, they, um, they have, what is it, 100 days? No, one year birthday, where they sit the kid down and they put a pile of money in front of them, um, books, like, you know, educational stuff, and... Toys. And whatever the child reaches for, that's what his destiny is going to be. And they do. It's a, it's a newborn. They see the stuff. And if they reach for the money, then they're going to be rich. They're, they're going to go into, that's what the, you know. And the parents will guide the child to making, amassing the most wealth. Or if they reach for books, they'll get them into the best school. Because they, they, they assume that that's the child's nature towards whatever that thing will be. <laughs> How ridiculous. Uh, the Koreans put stock in it. But we do the same thing. Oh, my children will appreciate this later. And so we make the choice to maybe get a second job or whatever, you know. And, and we chase after something that we think that our children, when if you talk to most children, what they want is you. They're interested in you, your time, your being involved in their lives. And by the time they're old enough to figure out what money's actually valuable for and all that, then they don't care about you anymore because you've not invested in them in the first place. And they're the ones that are leaving out the door. Uh, there was a song. Oh, Cats in the Cradle. Cats in the Cradle. You jumped right there. Thank yeah. You. Yeah. Cats in the Cradle. It's exactly what happens. Why? Because wealth is lost, stolen, and destroyed. It has no value except to the person that has it. There, you, know, you ever have your grandmother? Oh, this thing is so good. I'm gonna, you got to hang on to it. When I'm gone, you make sure you get it because it's so valuable. And you get it and you take it to a pawn shop or whatever. And they're like, it's a piece of junk. It ain't worth nothing. But it was important to her. Gold is useless to a newborn. Just saying. Pacifier? A hug? Yeah, they love that. Work. Here's part of our problem. We bought into this lie. Work is a good gift. We try to acquire and accumulate the wealth to pass on to the next generation so that they don't have to work or work so hard. Really? Why is that a bad thing? God gave us work. God gave, made us to work. He made us to work. We were created to work. It's not. The ground was cursed. Work wasn't cursed. The ground doesn't give us as much wealth as it should for the amount of work we do. 
But work itself was not cursed. Wanting to raise your children so that they have enough wealth that they don't have to work like you did, which many of the immigrant families coming over, that was, an, that was the ideal. That's part of the, the American dream is that you can acquire enough stuff that you can retire or not work and your children might not have, you know, you can get enough wealth that you don't, your children don't have to work. We're living in a time where there's an entire generation of those people and they are some of the worst people in the world because they have nothing to do and they don't value anything. To them, life is disposable. People are disposable, things are disposable. I, I get more because they don't have to work for it. They don't understand. Work was a good gift. We are designed, created to work this world and enjoy it. It's supposed to be part of our enjoyment. It's not a curse. It's not a bad thing. Yeah, go ahead. Um, you know, with all the, um, um, what do you call them? the riots going on and everything, every once in a while you, you get a name of somebody that you hear their parents are really wealthy and yeah. they're just out there rioting. Yeah. Most of those riots are being led by young 20-something white people who come from extremely wealthy families. When my son was in preschool, there was a, another little boy, and just learning his story, his mother wanted him, she was a single mom and just worked. She wanted you know, him to be in this preschool, wanted these certain things for him, so she was never with him. And that kid became like a real monster because he wanted her attention. Mm -hmm. So he was going to get her attention, and unfortunately it was being bad. Yeah. And, you know, he's being bad to my son. And so that's how I learned all these stories. And, you know, I didn't, it was just like, ladies, pay attention to him. You know, he wants a mom, not a sweater. Yeah. Well, they, we idolize the rich. That's the problem. Even in the church, we idolize the rich. We pay deference to them. Oh, they're wealthy. They must know, they must be somebody important. They're good at making money. You're good at something, too. And just because it doesn't make you money doesn't mean you're, you're, you're of less value or less whatever than they are. We're all gifted and skilled in different ways. But work was a gift. Thirdly, Andrew, I'm sorry. Yeah. You mentioned the Great Depression. Many of us uh, maybe had parents like that. I, I know I did, right? My dad always said, he said, I grew up in the Depression, so we didn't have anything. And that so impacted him that he wanted to acquire this, this, and this. And, didn't know how much he had acquired until I realized that he had, that he was dying. And so he said, Ken, you need to go look at, he told me where to go look. And so I said, that means mom doesn't have to worry about it. He said, no, dad, mom doesn't have to worry about it. But it still impacted him the way that he did things. Mm -hmm. I mean, he, he was a workaholic. He, he got to some stuff, but he was a workaholic. And yeah. I, I, was, I never, I never was effective. I was effective because I knew I didn't want to do that. <laughs> well, it's, it's not the meaning of life. All right, any more? <laughs> so, okay, not until you started good. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thirdly, uh, ultimate meaning does not come from work. We seem to think that that the meaning of life is in what we do. When you introduce yourself to people, usually you tell them your name and then what you do. Uh, I mean, that's, uh, that's just basic information. You know, or you'll ask, or you'll ask, oh, well, what do you do for, you know, what do you do for a living? That's how important it is. That was so strange when I went to Korea. Koreans don't care what you do for a living. <coughs> They will exchange names, and then the second question is how old you are. Wow. Well, they want to know so they know where to... Yes, because that sets who pays deference or homage to who. Because it changes the way you structure your words and sentences. Because whoever is older has more authority or more respect. respect. So the first question is, is who are you? The second question is, how old are you? Most of the Koreans that I knew, I don't know what they did for a living. It never talk, they don't talk about it. 
They are not who they are, what they do. Unless the context is that. It's always about who their family is and the like. It's a totally different perspective. Now, they put all their meaning in that, too, and that's a whole, that, that would be a different, this would be a different lesson for them. <laughs> but for us, ultimate meaning doesn't come from work. This is what our preacher here is trying to figure out. Where does it come from? What is the ultimate meaning to life? <sighs> all right. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses... 22 through 26, there we go. For what, for, I can't, for what has man of all his labor? I can't do it, sorry. <laughs> what is a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This, is all, this also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner he is given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after wind. Interesting little phrase here. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting to give to one who pleases God. That's not what we think it is. Um... The idea here is that we store up in heaven those things that we labor for in this world, if you're doing it right. Those that are unsaved, those who are sinners, are not storing up in they're not storing up in heaven for themselves. There's a there's an underlying idea here, not that the sinner is giving it to the believer, but that Everything that they do in this world benefits us. Which allows us to serve God more efficiently. You ever heard the, the, well I guess it's not really a joke, but the story that there was a little old lady and she would go to her window and would pray three times a day for groceries and that God would provide and, and all this and she didn't have any money and all that. And the guy next door who was wealthy and had the Ferrari and all that, finally got fed up with her praying to God all the time because he didn't believe in God. So he went to the store, bought groceries, and brought them there. See, God didn't provide them uh, for did. you. I did. And she says, oh, no, God just used Satan to provide my groceries. <laughs> That's the idea here. We all have jobs. We all work for people. Some of them are Christians. Many of them are not. Some of them are very wealthy ungodly people and you work for them and you are gaining privilege or wealth you're gaining all the all that you get from that unsaved employer and it's being given to you you're you're you acquire that and you're storing up for heaven and they're not that's the idea here that he's talking about just because they're unsaved doesn't mean they don't have a purpose. Bill Gates, exceedingly wealthy man. Bezo, Jeff Bezo, owner of Amazon. Incredibly wealthy man. They employ how many Christians that take and do something useful with it? How many Christians work for them and donate to the local church, to missions overseas and all that? The increase is going to them because you are gaining in whatever God is going to give us in heaven for it, and it's come through the unsaved. 
They have a purpose. There is meaning to their life. It may be so that you have a job in order to do what you're doing with whatever it is you're earning for God. See, it's all connected. Solomon recognizes that here. So, what are we supposed to do? What does this mean to us? Well, we should enjoy work. If you don't enjoy your job, you might want to think about finding one that does. Oh, but I can't earn more. Well, maybe it's not about the earning of it. Maybe it's that you're, you're looking beyond where God wants you to be. And it may be that you just need to enjoy what you're doing where you're at. Uh, and it, I mean, how many people get promoted up and they get to that next level and they're miserable? <coughs> they hate it. They wanted the money and they worked hard. They got there and they realized, you know what? I like the job I had mm -hmm. and, and all that. So maybe enjoy your work. There's nothing wrong with wanting to, to climb the ladder, though, either. And maybe you do enjoy that. But if you're miserable, God doesn't, didn't make us to be miserable in our work. There are other things that he makes us miserable in the <laughs> joke for other reasons. But it may be that, that you've gone beyond where you should be. Working God's context is a gift. We just don't think that way in America, though, do we? God gives only good gifts. And the good gift of work, mm -hmm. it may be our attitude. It may be <clears throat> that we're not doing what God wants us to do. Because it should be fun. It should be enjoyable. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. And it doesn't mean that it's going to make us exceedingly wealthy. We, we seem to think that wealth will make us happy. The most miserable people I've ever known in my life have been wealthy people. And they really were. They're, they had the most messed up families to the point that it was sickening. It's a mess. It doesn't make us happy. Because we're always looking for more. Even Rockefeller said, well, how much, when asked, how much? Just a little bit more. A little bit more. <laughs> a guy was, <laughs> a guy was ridiculously wealthy. Second, working its fruits are meant to be enjoyed. If you are not enjoying that which you're getting, then you're doing it wrong. If all you're doing is putting it away, putting it away, putting it away, putting it away, saving it and saving it, and you've got these massive bank accounts, and... You're all stressed out and worried and all that, and you've got you're not enjoying life. And you know, a lot of times it's well, I'm, I'm saving it for my kids' education. I'm saving it for my retirement. I'm saving it for whatever it is. Guess what? The only moment you're guaranteed is right now. The next moment isn't guaranteed, and you're to be, God expected you to enjoy. He gave you the job that earns that income for your enjoyment. Enjoy it. Do something with it that, that pleases you. That sounds strange, I know. But uh, we, have a, we, we have a country full of mental health issues. And I think part of it is because we don't know how to enjoy what we have. We're always either looking for the next thing or trying to accumulate more. And nobody's enjoying the here and now. Sit on your deck and get a nice hot cup of coffee, call in work late. Watch the squirrels play in your yard. It's fun. I enjoy watching the birds fight in my bird feeder. We sit there and watch them. And it's the same ones all the time. We're sure they're married. I mean, it's crazy. You, if you ask my youngest daughter, they all have names and they all have personalities. According to her. She enjoys it. We enjoy it. Do find something you enjoy. I enjoy watching the lake in the mountains. I can sit there for hours and just watch the water. I can sit and watch a fire in a fire pit for hours. It's fun. It's enjoyment. It's relaxing. There's nothing wrong with it. You're saying, but you could be doing something. You could be out working. You could be doing, no. And it doesn't cost you anything. It doesn't necessarily cost you anything. <laughs> work and its fruits are meant to be enjoyed. I should enjoy the work of my labor. There are many miserable people because they're not enjoying the work of their hands. 
They're miserable at work because they don't enjoy it, because they don't enjoy what they ate. What difference does it make if you make so much money and you don't do something you want? If you're trying to keep up with the Joneses, you're not enjoying what you have. You're working for them. You should first work to see if the Joneses are happy. Ah, well, that's, yeah, that's, a good that's a good one, Debbie. No, she's right. And then you might find out that the Joneses are trying to keep up with you. Yeah. Yeah. Or they're trying to keep up with the Smiths. I'm not trying to keep up with anybody. Enjoy your life. If you don't enjoy your life, nobody else is. And probably nobody enjoys being around you either. I wonder why adult children don't come around parents. That may be it. You're just not enjoying life, and therefore you're not enjoyable to be with. I don't know how many families I know that the parents have chased away the children <coughs> because they were just always too busy, too worried about this, that, or the other. They always stuck on that phone. Oh, I gotta, I, I gotta take this. Middle of the, their daughter's play of her senior year, whatever. They're, they're too busy trying to accumulate power, status, prestige, whatever it is they're chasing, and they're not enjoying it. So work and its fruits are meant for us to enjoy. Maybe some of us enjoy this much. Others of us may enjoy this much. God decided that. Accept it. See, there, now, we're, now we're on the sovereignty. And when we don't accept where God puts us or gives us, and we think we belong here, and we're down here, and we say, no, God, I'm going to be up here, and I'm going to do whatever it takes to get there. It's my life. That's what we're doing. Solomon says it doesn't work. Because you'll get here and you won't be happy. You won't be fulfilled. You won't find meaning in life. I really think that you can't find meaning in life without finding enjoyment. Because you have to have that downtime. I mean, there is a whole mental health field out there I'm trying to help people over this, but it's because they've not found the enjoyment in life. Whereas if you just learn to enjoy wherever it is you're at and what you're doing and be more accepting, that does so much for your mental state. You go on vacation that's relaxing and you come back and go, wow, that was so good. Now I gotta go back to work. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe if you didn't work as much or maybe take an easier job, you could have little bits of that relaxation. Oh, but then I'll have to sell my house or my car. I, I won't be able to have my BMW. I, I, I've got to go get like a Ford Gremlin <laughs> or something. <laughs> Whatever. Well, okay, maybe you won't have that status symbol, but can you enjoy your life? This is, this is meaning of life stuff, guys. This is deep. It's pondering. It's hard. And it flies in the face of our world. As it screams at us, do more, get more, have more, be more powerful, be more, you're not successful. You can't have the women unless you smoke cigarettes. My sick brand of cigarettes. <laughs> Come on, Madison Fifth Avenue is screaming at us constantly on the radio, on billboards, everywhere, telling us you haven't arrived until you're driving this. I don't like the look of that to start with. Why would I want to drive it? <laughs> You know, people want whatever it is. You know, it's funny. Sports cars. They look great. I hate them. Not because I don't like to go fast. They're, I find them so uncomfortable. I won't buy one. I don't care how much money I have. If you gave me one, I'd sell it to buy something that I found comfortable. Because I'm going to drive around. I want to be comfortable. I don't care what anybody thinks about what I'm driving. If you find a minivan comfortable, let's face it. There, there, there's nothing cool about a minivan. <laughs> but if it's comfortable, be comfortable. Enjoy it. Enjoy life. Don't let other people dictate that. All right, comments and questions. All right, three things and we'll go. First of all, we need God's gift of wisdom to find life's true purpose. Which means only he can tell us from the outside in. That's going to be our mantra as we go through Ecclesiastes. Secondly, focusing solely on work and material possessions 
leads to no eternal gain. And it will make you miserable. <coughs> and thirdly, we should enjoy our work thanking God for his provision. I know that's going to be a tough one. It's a gift. We need to view work as a gift. And once we get that perspective, work falls into the right place in our lives. And we can enjoy life. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this book as it takes and looks at the meaning of life. It looks at everything in our world and puts it in focus and in its place the way you intended. Lord, help us to learn these lessons and apply them in our daily lives. In Jesus' name, amen.